Hassan in Swahili is dedicated to all you beautiful people around the world. We say Jumbo! podcast. I'm Richard Lewis, your host, as we discuss issues related to global missions and the worldwide outreach of the Great Commission. All right. Well, this morning I have um, a colleague of mine, Derek Seip. He's going to talk about his ministry. I met Derek many years ago. He he and his wife, Holly, were um, students of mine when I was uh, training missionaries with the United World Mission. I had an opportunity to take a trip with them, and so um, we're going to be listening a little bit about uh, the ministry of uh, Derek and Holly Stipe. So, Derek, welcome. Thank you. And uh, you were my first field leader, by the way, too. So that's this is exciting. To... Yeah, I remember that trip. It was um, memorable, <laughs> to say the least. Hey, Derek, let's start off by you just kind of sharing with our uh, audience um, your journey, how you got uh, involved in missions, and uh, just kind of uh, some of the some of the things you've been doing down through the years. So just take off. Sure. Well, um, so I, first, I'm married, um, and my wife has been a wonderful partner with me through all these many years of missions. Um, she and I were called very differently um, in a vacation Bible school when I was 10 years old. I, we had this woman who was a missionary to Africa who was talking uh, at our backyard Bible study that my parents had arranged. Mm-hmm. And I heard as she was talking about missions in Africa, uh, very clearly, you're going to do this for me one day. And it scared the pants off me. I thought... Uh, a missionary's job was to go into a far-off place, get killed by the natives, and then they feel bad, they repent, and they build a church. There you um, go. So uh, that was my calling. I, I kind of spent my teenage years running from that uh, or trying to find a way around it in some way. My wife, though, she was adopted from South Korea. She just felt like she wanted to go back and, and maybe reach the people of South Korea, and you know, maybe she might end up saving her family in the process. Um, uh, specifically, before we met, she was at a missions fair at our church and walked past a poster of orphans in China, and she just started crying, and she knew it was exactly what she wanted to do. Shortly after that experience, God brought us together. We started exploring what missions would look like. Uh, I was... Um, by that time, though, I was in my mid-20s, worked for a while. Anyway, it was uh, actually a consultant at a consulting uh, company doing strategy consulting, wondering why I was in the middle of strategy consulting when I wanted to be overseas and why God kept on saying not yet. Um, but in that time, uh, my fiance, now my wife, and I, we took the perspectives course and it absolutely just rocked our world. Started learning that there is a strategy, there's specific strategy to mission work and uh, there's a way to go about it. Learned about cultural anthropology, uh, at least the beginning ideas of it, which really prepared us for your course. Coming out of that perspectives class, we really decided that we wanted to choose an organization that followed the principles uh, that we learned in perspectives. 
Mm-hmm. And those guiding perspectives have, have been the foundation, really, of, of what we've done uh, even to this day, uh, which that was in 1999. So that's wow. uh, a long time ago now. Yeah, I, you know, I, uh, I appreciate that. There's a lot of, there's a lot of people that uh, don't know where to begin when it comes to uh, exploring missions, even if they're interested in it. They may be a member of a church. They may be, you know, uh, thinking about being in missions. And I always tell them that a great place to start is perspective. It is a good course, and it's uh, I think it's really good for the church. I think it's good for those on the missions committee, and certainly for those that are interested in missions. So uh, I appreciate that uh, that good word for apply. I'm not a part of the perspectives. Uh, I mean, I teach in it, but I'm not a part of the organization. So uh, I think that's great. So you went to perspectives and. Uh, what happened then? Did you go to Bible college or seminary or what, what happened then? You know, that's the weird thing. Uh, I always assumed that I needed a, a Bible degree. And every time that I've tried to go for a Bible degree, God redirected me. Mm-hmm. Um, I ended up getting my undergrad in human resource management. Um, I do have about 35 hours of uh, of theology. So I, I do have some theological background, um, which I think has helped me. Um, but even my master's, my master's is in uh, organizational leadership. Mm-hmm. And uh, all these things, again, with, with my strategy background, doing strategy consulting, God has been using that to really help me understand uh, how movements work and you know, how church grows. And, and I've, I've done a tremendous amount of research into that. Um, but the, uh, so no, I don't have a, don't have a Bible degree. Um, but, uh, after we got married, uh, our church kind of told us that we had to, um, have a normal one year of marriage, which I think is, is really important. Uh, we've right. seen so many people struggle by going off into the mission field too soon, mm-hmm. which is hard because I think when you're young, you're like, oh, I want to do this. And, and you, you feel like I have to get out there quickly, otherwise um, uh, people won't be saved or I'm wasting my time. And the interesting thing is God has his plan in place. And sure. that, that plan often has very wise <laughs> pieces of not rushing to it. God never mm-hmm. seems to be in a hurry. Um, we chose an organization, though. Um, we went through organizations and aligned them and valued them according to the perspectives. And um, anyway, we ended up working working for you um, for a while. We went through pre uh, pre field training through CIT mm-hmm. and took your course and took other courses on um, saturation church planting, church planting movements, whatnot. And anyway, just again blew my socks off all that. And um, yeah, just went to the field. I think that helped us feel very prepared. Yeah. Um, well, you know, the uh, this is the other aspect that a lot of people don't understand. I know that when I first started um, with United World Mission, they would often send me to different colleges and seminaries for their, you know, their mission fest or their mission week. And it seemed like uh, every organization that I visited said you had to have a Bible degree or you had to have uh, a seminary degree. And uh, so it was really uh, really helpful when uh, uh, you found an organization that said, listen, uh, having a Bible degree, certainly you want to have as much knowledge in theology and the scriptures as you can, 
but uh, the other skills that you have and other people have are just as valid uh, for going overseas. And so uh, I wouldn't want people to say that they have to wait until uh, they graduate from seminary before they do anything. So so uh, you went through the training, and of course, I guess you had to go raise your support after that, or did you already have your support? Yeah, uh, for us, support raising went pretty quick. Uh, my wife and I had both been on a whole lot of short-term trips. So um, with most of the people, I, I had been on six or so short-term trips. My wife had been on a couple. I think for us, our friends were thinking, well, it's about time. Um, <laughs> so, and, you know, it did take it did take a while. We got about 50%, right, you know, almost overnight. Uh, mm -hmm. The other 50% took a while. And that was a long time ago, so we didn't have to raise as much back then. Um, sure. Also before we had kids and, and all that. But, um, yeah, I, we, we weren't allowed to go until we had enough support. I, I, I do think that uh, raising support is one of the essential jobs of, uh, of an individual in, in our line of work. And um, to skip pieces, I think, is potentially detrimental. So anyway, sure. it was it was an important piece, I think, for us and and an important piece of obedience, I think, mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. So so what uh, after you raise your support, what happened then? Uh, we moved off to this big, uh, big, big country in East Asia with over uh, over a billion people. And uh, our goal was to try to help plant churches and start movements among the least reached people of that country and um, learned language though that we had kind of a contract with our home fellowship that said that we would not get deeply involved with uh, too much ministry before we learned the language um, which was tough but it was interesting because I ended up uh, on our breaks in the summer when we weren't in language school ended up working with others that were doing a lot of things and it was funny because some of these people didn't have any language at all. And we started listening to what the locals were saying, <laughs> which was different in their own language to what they were telling the foreigner that was maybe doing the training or was doing something else. And uh, we really began to see how important it was that we actually understood the language so that people would feel comfortable enough with us that we knew the culture and to be able to talk to us about what's really going on. We, we saw so many people operating purely through trans. Now, I understand there's a time and a place for, for everything, and uh, but working purely through translators with no cultural understanding, um, the there was a whole lot of locals that really felt um, obligated to listen mm -hmm. to the foreigner and obligated, well, God sent them across the sea and and they've done so much to be able to come here, so we should come to this thing that they're doing. <laughs> and um, I don't know, it made me sad. It made me think that uh, it's potential that we could really be wasting the time of a lot of locals. Mm -hmm. Well, learning the language, I, I, I would think, um, but then again, I'm speaking for, as an old man, but it seems like a, a no-brainer that people should... Um, dedicate themselves to learning language when they first get on the field. And I, I, you know, in this world of English, you can just about go anywhere in the world and get by in English. Uh, I mean, my daughter lives in Senegal, and even though it's a Franco-speaking country, uh, there are enough people that uh, I could get along with uh, just speaking English. Yeah, tough, not as uh, 
not as easy as maybe in East Africa or something. So uh, how long were, were you in uh, language school? That was two years. It was two. Wow. <laughs> Some, sometimes felt like a very long time, but that language required it. Yeah. Um, the, uh, I will say this, uh, I'm not, I, I'm learning some of the language for the country that we're working with now, but I'm probably not going to be fluent, but I feel like I've learned enough of the cultural issues mm -hmm. on how to really understand and operate. And I do want to honor the culture by learning the language, but I'm probably not going to end up being as fluent. Um, but I'm also in a different place where I was before where I'm, the people that I'm recruiting and sending, they are learning the language. Yeah. So. Well, I understand the language that you're talking about. It's one of the toughest languages to learn. I actually, I've known uh, people that have lived there for years and can get, al get along quite fluently uh, on day-to-day -day activities. But when it comes to standing before a group of people or preaching or something like that, uh, some of them actually refer back to uh, translators, and it's uh, so it is tough. So, how long were you in this country? We were there for uh, for about twelve years, and um, God did some amazing things while we were there. And there's one story that I just really, really love. We had we had taught so many of the things that we had learned about um, the spontaneous expansion of churches and what happens when you really empower locals to take the gospel from house to house and to start house churches and um, some of those key principles that are in there. And a local friend of ours ended up taking this and completely repackaging all of the training. He made it his own, which was amazing because I think wherever we are in the world, it has to be indigenized and you almost need a local translator to take it and to, to change it and to make it local in, in a palatable way that they can take it. But he took it up into this remote area and he just started teaching people and helping them get a vision for their entire county. And uh, they fasted and prayed for 30 days and they started asking, God, what do you want? And the answer came back, I want a church in every single village of this county. And then they said, well, how do we do that? And they said, we don't know. So mm -hmm. they, they fasted and prayed again. And um came up with this methodology and within six with sorry um their their goal their initial goal was to see um a hundred churches planted in one year and th these are these are churches that hadn't planted anything in about 60 years since um the controlling government had gotten in charge and the population went down as the old people died, as the young people went off to the cities for education, and as the working class people went off to be able to um, to earn money. So the only people that were left were the elderly and the babies. And it was all the people that everybody said, oh, God can't use them. Mm -hmm. um, but they had a goal, and their goal was we've got um, 300 villages, but some of those villages are big, so we need a total of about 600 different churches and they said, our first year, we're going to plant 100 churches. Mm. Um, and they just started going out. And they said, all right, in our church here, we've got people from seven different villages. We're As a church, we're going to go to all seven villages, evangelize those villages, and leave one of the people there in those villages and plant a house church. Mm. And then they just kind of multiplied out like that. And they didn't make their goal of 100 their first year. They, uh, they only planted 
um, about 25 their first year. And I say <laughs> only tongue in cheek, right? That's, I think that's wonderful. That's great. Yeah. So that was one year, about 25. The next six months of the next year, they planted another about 20, uh, 20, 22 churches. And so they had gotten up to, I think it was about 40, between 45 and 48 total locations. And then the earthquake happened in 2008. Mm -hmm. And um, estimates are between 80 and 100,000 people died. Mm -hmm. And what happened there, it's interesting because um, local Christians from the big cities of the capital of that country and the big economic centers, which I'm sure people had all heard of, um, came in and they said, where are your broken down houses? And these local people started saying things like, praise God, <laughs> we didn't have any houses broken down. And, and these the believers from the big city said, what, what do you mean? Praise God, no broken down houses. They said, are you Christians? And the, the local brothers and sisters said, yeah, we're Christians. And they said, well, where do you meet? And the local guy said, we meet in Farmer Bob's house. <laughs> or Farmer Joe's Joe. Joe yeah. I'll say Farmer uh -huh. Joe. Um, and they, so they'd say, well, where is he? And they talked to Farmer Joe and uh, they say, so are you a farmer or are you a pastor? He said, well, I'm both. Mm, wow. <laughs> he said, you can't be both. You have to choose one or the other. You can't put your hand. They use really good biblical language. You can't put your handle, handle plow and look back. Otherwise, you're not fit. Uh, you've got to trust God with everything. Uh, do you trust God? Yes. Well, then you've got to quit your job. Um, where do you meet? We meet in my house. You can't meet in your house. You're going to destroy. You need to have separation between sacred and secular. And really good, really good principles. And... Um, I'll tell you, though, like that, um, in one weekend, they started saying, well, how many other people are you? Are there like you? And they called back to the big cities and they said, hey, we've got we got 40, 45 house churches here that need pastors and need locations. And in one weekend, they rounded up all the money to be able to rent a location and pay the salary for these guys for three years. Wow, that's amazing. And uh, yeah. Like so was it at that time that um, when you were when the uh, the National Brothers uh, uh, were taking charge that uh, you and Holly decided uh, it's time for you to make a move or um, how did that come about? Yeah. So the, the story goes that um, they stopped planting churches because they were dependent on foreign. So. Um, you know, after they raised all that money and they instilled those pastors, um, you know, and they had these great stories that they told back in the big cities about all these wonderful things that they did. And they they broadcast it all over and, and say, hey, we planted 45 churches in a weekend. Mm. Um, but uh, I'll tell you that after that, they didn't plant another church. Wow. Um, and it's because really well-meaning outside money ended up um, changing the dynamics of what God was doing there locally, where it was dependent on lay leadership, mm -hmm. um, people meeting in homes, people sharing with their friends, uh, no sacred secular divide. Everything was, everything was, you know, all secular was sacred, right? And mm -hmm. when they started making those divisions, when they started to look at, well, how do we reach the next village? They started thinking, well, how do we get funds to be able to, we have, you know, how do we get the funds to be able to rent a place in that new village? Because we've been told the right way to do church planting now. Mm -hmm. 
Um, you know, that's, that's a real tragedy, uh, Derek, when you, uh, you know, uh, the, the title of that book, When Helping Hurts, uh, kind of comes to mind when you, you, you talk about uh, people that are coming in, they're well-meaning, they, they want to help the local congregation, but in the process with bringing in outside funds, sometimes from the West, many times from the West, from my perspective, it kind of messes up, if I can use that colloquial phrase, it kind of messes up uh, what God was doing uh, just through um, a, a natural indigenous movement. Yeah, it. Um, I think we as foreigners from a very rich country feel guilty. We have so much, we want to do what we can. And so we just assume that our role is to just give money. And um, I think, you know, one of the things that I just really learned through you and through others was that um, you have to really take the time to understand what God is doing. Um, yeah. Because we can, we can end up going against what God wants to do by going for a quick win. And I think that's what happened with those big city churches coming in is they were going for a great and man, it looks great in a newsletter. Mm -hmm, um, sure. And but I mean, some of the things that you, know, you and I both do, I mean, it's it doesn't necessarily look good in newsletters because we can't put a building on it. We can't right. put um, it's not us doing it. We're empowering other people to do the work of the ministry. We're, we're empowering local individuals. And that's a house church is not something that is, I, you, I guess you can take a picture of it. But one of the many of the places we can't even take pictures of it. So. So you eventually left this country. And what happens next? Yeah. Um, long story short, we had a huge detour. Um God brought us to a new organization. Um, nothing wrong with the old organization. You know, just changes happen in life. Mm -hmm. And um, we were, um, I was expecting we were going to get kicked out of that country. We actually, we, we tested the waters. We, we were wise, but we were bold. Um, and I was expecting we'd get kicked out. Um, a family situation ended up forcing us to have to leave. Um, mm -hmm and relocate back to the States. Um, but in that time, uh, we were asked to help head up church planting for a, uh, for a network focused on North Korea. Oh, okay. Well, that's um, quite interesting. Um, tell us a little bit about that network. I realize uh, you are prohibited uh, in probably many areas. Uh, but I've always been interested. Uh, North Korea is probably one of, if not the most uh, closed country in all the world. I have a friend that uh, he went to um, South Korea many, many years ago, and probably 40 years ago, maybe longer than that. And uh, he is now working uh, on the border and uh, and is um, engaged somewhere in um, that area in reaching uh, into North Korea. So uh, if you can share what this network is about, what are the needs, and uh, just give our audience a little bit of a flavor on how to reach this most unreached country in the world. Yeah, well, so you're right. There is a lot of stuff that I can't talk about, but there is a lot that we can. Um, first, I'll say that there is 
there is a church in North Korea. There is a church that still exists there. Um, and there are believers that are risking their lives uh, to meet. Some of them go off, uh, meet in caves and, and other places outside of the city. Um, others meet quietly in, in their homes. But um, the situation is such that it's so difficult that a lot of families are, are even afraid to tell their children that, that they're Christians. Because if a child bows their head and prays at school for lunch, that could be the thing that ends up getting a family turned in and going to prison. Mm. Um, so it, it's absolutely you know, terrible conditions, I guess, for Christianity that's been number one on the world's most persecuted list for, I think, 20 years, uh, according to Open Doors. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think recently maybe tied with probably Afghanistan or something like that. But uh, but um, I guess just unimaginably difficult conditions where it just seems like the church has a problem just having the space just to even be the church, um, which mm-hmm. which is difficult. Um, but I will say this, that there are uh, there. Uh, aside from the 20 to 25 million uh, people of, of North Korea, there's also 200,000 that live in the neighboring really large country right next door mm-hmm. um, uh, who also equally need to be reached. And there are uh, about 35,000 of North Koreans that live in the South. Um, and although about 60% of them or more will profess faith as they're going through the education center to learn how to be a capitalist versus learning how to be a communist, um, because you know, they come to the South and they don't have, in, in the North, they were provided a job and a house. And in the South, they have to pay rent. They have to do all these different things that cause stresses that they have never experienced before. Um, but after they go through that re-education training, uh, less than 5% of them will attend church um, on Sunday. So that there's a huge reason to believe that that 60% that profess faith do so thinking that they're going to get something positive out of it. Mm. Um, so there's, 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 and there are also others in, in other countries that need to be reached as well. Um, one of the things that I learned from you and from others is that the, the best people to reach a people are themselves or their nearest neighbors. Right. Um, and I actually wouldn't necessarily put, uh, and this is going to get me in trouble. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily put South Koreans as the nearest neighbors because the, the culture is so radically different. Even the language is different. 40, mm-hmm. 50% of the language has changed in the South versus the North and as, and as diverged as they've gone in radically different directions. So much of the South Korean language is filled with English words. Um, All the technical terms are different when you look at books. Um, So there's a huge divergence. But North Koreans love their culture. They love being who they are. Uh, They love the way that they talk. But so much of the focus in the South is really on becoming South Korean because it'll help you if you become South Korean. but that's not indigenous. So uh, we really want to engage with indigenous methods. Hmm. But um, so the network, the the interesting thing about the network is that we've got three different possible scenarios for what's going to happen in the future. Uh, The first scenario is um, things are going to stay the same. Things are going to be the most locked down and the most difficult to reach country. 
and it's going to continue that way. That's mm -hmm. scenario number one. Scenario number two is it could slowly open up just like that big country right next door did. Slowly mm -hmm. opened up economically and um, with trade. And you saw the previous president of the United States really encouraging the president of North Korea to open up um, for uh, tourism and whatnot. So it's either number one, stay closed, number two, slowly open, or three, some radical event happens that suddenly the walls come down just like what happened in Eastern Europe. And overnight, right, the doors opened and suddenly there was free movement of people almost overnight. Um, so what we have to do is we have to plan, and, and our goal, is, as always, is how do we reach the entire population of them uh, we have to work within these three different scenarios. How do we reach all, uh, whether it stays locked down, slowly opens, or radically opens? Mm -hmm. hmm. um, so you're uh, with this network, are you recruiting uh, people? I mean, how, how is that working? Well, um, you know, the, <laughs> one, of the, one of the interesting things is that uh, tall big nose white people, uh, such as myself, um, <laughs> are not always the best people to go in uh, and to do things. You know, for We work with uh, a number of North Korean defectors and we've had some speak at some of our conferences. And I remember one of them saying one time, speaking in front of all of you white people was probably the most difficult thing that I've ever done in my life. Mm. Um, they said, since I was young, I was told that you Americans came in, killed, raped, killed babies, you know, even eat, you know, even ate babies. And she said, in my mind, I know that, but in my heart, I've grown up hearing all these terrible stories. And, and they said, standing in front of you and talking to you was the hardest thing that I ever did. Um, and, you know... <laughs> It's going to be really hard to speak to the heart of somebody who's shaking in their boots just talking with you. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so we are we are busy recruiting from a whole host of different nations. Um, you know, we've got uh, we've got some friends from Honduras that really want to go, and one young guy, awesome, awesome guy. Uh, we went down to Honduras and did a did a conference on North Korea, and this. 20-some-year-old guy came up and he said, I speak English. Uh, can, I, can I tutor in English to be able to go and help reach North Koreans? And we said, yeah. And within a couple of months, he was on a plane uh, and we had arranged for him to do a four-month short-term trip uh, to see how that went with him. And he came back saying, I want to do this full-time. What do I need to do? Mm, um, but just really wonderful connections. We have seen that Central and South Americans especially just have such a warm heart that North Koreans just open up to. Well, and that's wonderful. I recently so, did a uh, an interview with uh, a, a guy that's from Ecuador, and he's actually, uh, he wanted to go to Morocco. That was his uh, passion. And uh, But as God led him, he ended up... Uh, uh, coming to the United States, he's now a pastor uh, in Arkansas, but his church is very much involved in missions, and Morocco never left his heart, and so he's got uh, people that uh, from Ecuador, Honduras, uh, 
other parts of Latin America that are thinking about to going to places like Thailand and maybe, uh, you know, maybe South Korea, North Korea. I don't know exactly uh, how that'll work, but I, 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 I you know, you and I know, uh, Derek, that uh, the hands of missions worldwide, um, we still have a role in the United States and North Americans. But the fact of the matter is it's the majority world church that probably will be taking the torch of uh, cross-cultural uh, ministry uh, far beyond uh, what North Americans are doing right now. Yeah, that's that's so important. And I think that one of the things that people have a hard time understanding is that that doesn't mean that we don't have a role to play. Right. Um, there are so many great roles that need to be played. And so, for instance, you know, logistics, the vision, the strategy, you know, putting together the frameworks and then training and mobilizing people into those frameworks. But it's, um, you know, Jesus, he set up... He, Working with 12 people, he set up a framework and he just mobilized people in that framework. And then those people could do the same thing for others. And, and there's there's so much that can be done. But when we mobilize the whole of the body of Christ into the whole of the work of Christ, God does amazing things. Let me tell you a story. So this is, sure. this is my first experience with this. Uh, I was in that large East Asian country. Um, and a friend of mine called me up and he said, there's a bunch of Brazilians coming your way, pick them up at the airport, uh, introduce them to what ministry looks like in your city. And, uh, by the way, they like Tibetans, so they want to hear about Tibetans too. So, um, I arranged a dinner for these, uh, Brazilians to go and to meet some people working with Tibetans and to eat at a Tibetan restaurant. And um, I had talked with the people that were doing the Tibetan work, and I, um, and they said, yeah, we'll go to this restaurant, but we've been trying to make relationship there for five or six years, and we've just never been able to, but but it's a great place where they'll be able to meet some actual Tibetan people. So later we get to the restaurant, and the Brazilians turned to me, and they said, uh, Derek, we've decided on this trip that we're not going to pray before we eat. We're going to sing. Is that okay? <laughs> and... We said, sure, absolutely. So the Brazilians start singing this amazing Portuguese song. And out of the woodwork comes the owner, the owner's parents, grandparents, his baby, the cleaners, the, the cooks. Everybody comes out of the woodwork and they're listening to these Brazilians sing this amazing song. And at the end of the song, the, the Tibetans say, what is that song and what does it mean? And the Brazilians just start explaining the gospel in their song to the Tibetans. And the Brazilians say, well, what about you? Do you have any songs? And like that, they just went back and forth sharing about each other's culture. And mm -hmm. the Tibetans learned about Christ. And in one evening, <laughs> in one meal, the Brazilians broke down more walls than, sorry, the white, you know, big-nosed yeah. American could in, in five, six years. Oh, wow. That's and, fantastic story it's amazing it, you know just when we don't create space for others uh and the diversity that exists in the body of christ we really miss out on the full power of christ yeah i totally agree well listen we need to wrap this up but i want to give you some time to uh, for a couple things uh, number one just share what you would like to share with uh, uh, our audience doesn't have to be about what we've been talking about 
maybe it has something uh, to do with strategy or preparing or whatever. And um, then uh, give us some information on how we can, uh, our listeners who are interested in what you're doing, if there's an opportunity maybe to uh, interact with you. Yeah. Um, first, uh, I would, I'm, I'm continuing to learn. I just want to say I am always learning. And I think one of the things that you and others have really uh, impressed upon me is to always approach everything as a learner. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really helps us from being arrogant. And I know that I can, that I can be arrogant at times. Um, but, you know, there is such a rich history in this whole idea of, of movements and uh, church movements, spontaneous expansion of the church. And uh, we're approaching so much of what we're doing in Korea from a historical perspective. We're dropping all of the language that we've learned and we're just speaking from what God did in Korea. And it was all based upon something called indigenous church theory, which was started in the mid 1800s by, uh, I think his name was Venn and Rufus Anderson. Hmm. And, but it all goes back to stuff that you and I would all recognize as, as kind of modern mission movement or spontaneous expansion of church or saturation of church planting, whatever it's called. Um, the roots of this are, are back in the 1850s and it became the standard for missions for so long. So um, just keep learning, look for cultural clues on what God has already done within your culture, I think is, is one thing. One of the things that, that I've really been impressed upon is that a movement, any, any people group that has been brought to Christ, a movement had to have happened at some point because the, the, the rate of church planting and evangelism has to radically surpass the birth rate in order to see a population um, radically come to Christ. So mm-hmm. these movements are, are, are very, very widespread. Um, the, uh, I talk a little bit about strategy in, in my own book, uh, Innovation and World Mission. Um, and so how, can, how, can, how can they get that book? That is, uh, that's published through William Carey Library and okay. the U.S. Center for World Mission. Um, it's available digitally um, from either them or through Amazon. Um, but we really need, I, I talk in it about the changing, um, the changing aspects of our world, how to understand what is changing. Um, and I think one of the most difficult things is that the world and cultures are changing so radically, yet we have an unchangeable gospel. Um, and so sometimes we can become rigid because we do say that we have an unchangeable gospel, but the culture through which the gospel is expressed is different. And so how do we deal with that? Um, so I talk about that in the book and how do we actually finish the job of, of planting churches within every single people group? Um, given the radical changes that are happening in our world. And I present some of the interesting challenges that we have, like how do we mobilize the entire body of Christ? So Sure. So if uh, someone would uh, would like to follow up with you uh, on some of this discussion, um, do you have a contact that uh, you want me to put on the uh, at the end of this recording? Or do you have an email that you can share now with me? Yeah, so if, if somebody's interested in learning more about what we're doing, um, we do believe that reaching North Koreans, where we can reach them now, is the most important thing. Um, 
And uh, if somebody wants to learn more about what we're doing, I would just say they know you, they know your podcast, have them contact you, and then you can put them in touch with me. Okay, great, good. Well, listen, uh, man, I really, really appreciate uh, your time. And uh, we may do another podcast uh, somewhere down the line uh, as a follow-up and learning more. And so uh, thank you again for spending this time uh, with us. And uh, God bless you and Holly and the kids. And we'll talk at you again real soon. Yeah, it's really a pleasure to uh, stay connected with you through the years. And uh, really have a lot of just thanks for all that you've done and pouring into my life and my family's life. So thank you. Well, it's true, isn't it? The journey of life and especially the life of a missionary is seldom straight. Certainly, this is the testimony of Derek and Holly. As mentioned, if you would like to interact with Derek, you can email me by going to my website, lewis-training.com, and I will pass that on to Derek. You can learn more about the North Korean Mission Network by going to their website, which is krin.info. Also, Derek's book, Innovation in World Mission, a framework for transformational thinking about the future of world mission, is available by going to the William Carey Library website and Amazon. It was David Livingston who said, If a commission by an earthly king is considered an honor, how can a commission by a heavenly king be considered a sacrifice? Perhaps Jim Elliott thought of that when he wrote, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Well, thanks for listening, and until next time, God bless you. No problem. No problem. So long, friends. God bless you. No problem.